Hello, it's Puno. I'm the founder of I Love Creatives, and this is Girl Boss Radio. Have you ever been so frustrated with how the world works that you're like, you know what? I want to change it. Today is the day. I want to change the world. But then, when you try to do something about it, you realize how big the problem is, and it's um, it's overwhelming, to say the least. And then you're feeling like, I don't know about changing the world. It's too big sometimes. Well, turns out I am a mere mortal, and Emily Ackerman is a goddamn superhero out here fighting robots and changing the world. That's right, like a straight-up Avenger. Mm-hmm, you heard me correctly. Robots. Exactly. As a grad student at the University of Pittsburgh, Emily was running into problems with robots on her campus. Mm-mm, I'm not kidding. That's right, it's 2021, this is the future. Let's get used to it. Here we go. This is our life now. You're gonna hear more about it in the interview, but basically the college was using autonomous delivery robots. And Emily has a disability which requires her to be in a wheelchair. So the curb cuts on the side of the road are very important for her to use. And these stupid robots are just squatting here in the curb cuts. And one day Emily was heading towards the curb cut in a very busy street and got stuck because the robot was blocking her way. Anyways, Emily has been a badass about bringing attention to this issue and trying to help solve the problem. And while this was her first run-in with robots, it was not the first time Emily has had to deal with systemic and institutional barriers blocking access for her. Unfortunately, it's something she's dealt with her whole life. But despite the challenges she's been up against, she's crushing it as an engineer. She's crushing it with her contributions to COVID research, thank you. And she's crushing it with her work as a disability rights advocate. She is just crushing. It's just all around crushing, just crushing everywhere. She, oh, mm, crush, what is that? I don't care, I'ma crush it. I stand a cute chick in a wheelchair, living her best life and using her platform to stand up for her community. I'm all about it. I love to hear it. In this episode, Emily gave a lot of great pointers for how to approach design with less ableist thinking. It was a great conversation. It made me think a lot about the ways we often overlook disabled people in design and in other parts of life. So hopefully this will inspire you to think a bit more inclusively in your everyday life. Okay? All right, let's get into it. I'm glad that we're both cat moms. Yes. Because I adopted Mwadib, my cat, six years ago, and I went to a cat medium. Wow. Yeah. So they, like, let you know what your cat's thinking? Mm-hmm. Wow. She was very adamant about making sure she had permission to talk to Mwadib. 
because she was like, I don't want to just like call her up and you don't know. That's rude. (laughs) (laughs) And then she told me that my cat wanted to write a book. Whoa. (laughs) About what? It's called A Self-Help Guide for the Poor Unfortunate Souls Like Me. Wow. (laughs) That's loaded. Your cat's got things to say. She's ready. (laughs) And and so do you, actually. Thanks for that transition, Emily. (laughs) So, you know, I'd love to talk about something that got you into the press out of nowhere, but the story of the delivery robot Mm -hmm. when you decided to do a viral tweet. Can you tell me what happened? Sure. So I am a graduate student at the University of Pittsburgh, and uh, there was this kind of period of time over a summer where there were these little robots that were traveling around, and they had a person behind them, and they they looked sort of like a little cooler or like a tiny spaceship or something. And um, then one day, the humans behind them just kind of disappeared, and there really wasn't a whole lot of info about what they were or what they were doing, um, because when they were being trained, they were unmarked. And then once the school year started, it became more clear that they were a delivery system for food from university-owned dining halls and things like that. And um, they were driving themselves autonomously. And they are kind of a polarizing thing because some people love them and think that they're very cute. And then there are people who hate them and want to basically kick them. Like that bird scooter. Right, exactly <laughs> like bird scooters. And one day I was just walking around, I think, to class or something. And I had stopped at a, an intersection, um, a very busy one. It's a four-lane street. And um, the sidewalks kind of pile up with people. So I was standing behind a lot of people, and I should say I was in a wheelchair behind them, so I can't see beyond them. I'm looking at butts all day. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not great. And um, Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is great, yes. <laughs> Uh, but not when you can't see the street. Yeah. So the light turned and people started walking, so I followed. And when I got maybe halfway across the street, I realized that one of the robots was sitting in the curb cut, which is the little ramp that allows me to get on and off of the street. And so I thought, okay, well, by the time I get to it, it'll probably have moved. But when I got there, it hadn't. So I was sitting on a four-lane street where the light was about to turn back for the cars to go, and I was trapped. And I really quickly needed to decide what to do because I knew it wasn't going to move, um, and I knew that sitting in front of it wasn't going to make it move. And so I kind of panicked, and I hopped myself up over the curb, you know, the part that's not really meant for me, and uh, kind of turned around and stared at it and was like, is this happening? Are we doing this? And I kept walking and I turned around a block away and it was still sitting in the same spot. And I I was just beside myself because that is a technology, a curb cut was made for me. Yeah. It was made for disabled people to be able to access the community. And, and it's a hard fought win. I mean, we've only had them since 1990 when the ADA passed. 
Mm. And just knowing that there is this thing, this underdeveloped, non-human thing, putting me in danger and taking up that space that we fought so hard to win, mm -hmm. it just really was, I, it was not acceptable to me. And, and I knew that it was going to keep happening if I didn't say anything. And so I went and made some tweets, hoping to make some change. And I, I got some attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you ever get angry on Twitter or was this something that you did for the first time? It's not out of the ordinary for me to be angry. Maybe not so much on Twitter, but I'm a firm believer that being angry is okay. Yeah. And that being uh, upset about, you know, things that affect your life are okay. It's okay to make some noise. Did you tweet to the company? that owned these robots and what happened after that did they shut them down yeah so i tweeted at the company and the university and kind of explained what had happened and why it was a problem and i basically caused a bit of a frenzy <laughs> um internally i think it was the first time that the university at least had really had to deal with this problem in a public way. Yeah. I found out after that it was not by any means a unique experience. Mm -hmm. And so the robots were pulled from the street that day and reassessed and they were back on the street within four days. The frenzy that I caused, I guess, you could say, uh, led to some internal uh, re-looking at the map that the robot was allowed to use, some kind of discussions about what was supposed to happen versus what did happen with me. What happened for me was a whirlwind of, of media, I guess. The news picked up my story. Um, I was on a bunch of different websites. I was asked to write an article to do interviews with the Financial Times and with a reporter that's writing a story uh, for National Geographic and just kind of it became clear to me that I was the first one to really bring this to the, the public. Mm -hmm. We really hadn't had a public discussion yet about technology and the way that it's becoming part of our lives whether or not we're ready for it mm -hmm. and whether or not it's really beneficial for everybody and if it's harmful to groups of people and so yeah it, it, it just became this big discussion where people from all over were emailing me about their experiences with uh, similar robots uh, because there's a bunch of companies doing uh, very similar kind of delivery services mm -hmm. and lawyers talking about you know what rights the robots have versus uh, me what rights people have to damage robots, what pedestrian rights. Wow. It was wild. I mean, I was getting multiple emails a day just to, from people just all over. It was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like, whoa. Yeah. Now, whenever you tweet, are you like, do I want to go down this rabbit hole? <laughs> yeah. It definitely taught me a lesson about viral internet content and about the ways that people feel entitled to technology in public spaces, mm -hmm. whether or not it's good for other people. <laughs> Just, I really learned a lot from it. This episode is brought to you by Hair Story. I've been trying out Hair Story's new wash, 
It's a sulfate detergent and shampoo free hair cleanser. You're probably like, okay, wait, what is, what is it then? It's not shampoo. I don't know, ever since I turned 30, my hair has become more dry and I just, I need it to be more hydrated. So Hair Story's new wash has all these natural ingredients that don't strip away your hair's protective barrier and only removes excess oil and dirt. Basically all the good stuff that keeps your hair hydrated, that's staying put. Namaste. Nah, I'ma stay on your head. The other thing about it is there's absolutely no suds. And Hair Story says that suds are like the number one sign your shampoo is bad. Essentially, if it foams, it strips. What I thought was really interesting when I tried it is that it replaces your shampoo and conditioner. I feel like I have so many different bottles in my shower and this is just one, all in one. I do have to say though that <laughs> there is an extra product that I liked a lot and it was the hair balm, which was essentially this air drying cream that it just kind of gives it more of a polished finish and that worked so perfectly. I just put a little bit in my palm and then just boop, 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 pat down on the, on the frizz. It was really great. Anyways, I really enjoyed my experience with it. So if you want to try it out, check out Hair Story at hairstory.com and you can use the promo code GIRLBOSS to get 15% off your first purchase. That is H-A-I-R-S-T-O-R-Y.com and use the code GIRLBOSS to get 15% off. I saw that you gave a talk and in it you were giving examples of companies that have good intentions and are trying to create accessible solutions, but then they actually wind up being inaccessible. Can you give a few examples of that? You know, there are a lot of companies that are creating these robots for delivery purposes. So they're saying food or medicine could be delivered to anyone, but they tend to cite people like me uh, who are in wheelchairs or people who are old and can't um, leave the house as often. And, you know, companies will cite that they have consulted with disabled groups about the usability of their product. But it's, it's such an interesting problem because no community is really a monolith. We are all very diverse, even within the disability community or within um, the elderly community, right? People have different abilities, different desires. And so it's really hard for a company to say, oh, we have designed it with you in mind when you know maybe they've designed it with one person or one ability in mind, but for example, a blind community has a, a large problem with these robots as well because they can't see them as they're approaching and their guide dogs don't know what to do. The robot mm. doesn't know what to do. So it's, it's kind of an interesting question of how do we, within the design process, account for this. And it's not just a physicality thing too. It's also an economic yeah. accessibility issue. Yeah. You were talking about how 15% of the world's adults are disabled, but the median earnings are $21,000 per year and enabled is $31,000. Mm -hmm. And something like a stair climbing wheelchair is extraordinarily expensive. Right. Yes. And technological 
improvements and, and innovation. As an engineer, I really value new, bigger and better things, but they're often designed, even when they're for us, really without our input and our, our view on them. And so if you talk to any disabled person, odds are in America they're on Medicaid or some kind of um, insurance SSI program where we're limited at any time. We're not allowed to have more than around $2,000, depending on the program, to our name. And so it's really limiting in that, yeah, this is a technological advancement that really could benefit me, but do I have the money to pay for that delivery or do I have the money to pay the out-of-packet costs for a stair-climbing wheelchair when my insurance company says that it's not medically necessary, which is typically the response. And so, no, because we're limited by what we're allowed to have fiscally. Yeah, that's a really extreme example, but even things like um, the blind community has a large problem with companies who offer to consult with your business and make your website accessible. And the problem is it's marketed so that your business can avoid lawsuits. And the actual tools that they implement tend to interact badly with um, the technology that people use to read screens. So a, a screen reader will uh, verbally uh, read you all of what's on the screen. And so if the business's uh, solution that they paid a lot to implement interacts badly with that screen reader, that website's still inaccessible. And it's hard for us to, to get the word out and to help people understand, no, what you've done is actually inaccessible to me because there's really not a great avenue for us to share that information widely. And that's really what it is. There's like a communication gap mm -hmm. that's missing. Yeah. And I guess like, how did we get here? And like, what is a way that we can have more representation? Yeah, it's really an interesting problem to address now that I'm kind of in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to bridge that gap and it's hard. I mean, my experience is largely academic and that is a large source of that divide, I think, as far as technology goes. For example, I'm in the School of Engineering, which is responsible for a lot of design of products and of everyday solutions that, you know, we have in our homes and things. And I can count on one hand the number of disabled people I know that are within the 800 to 1,000 people in the School of Engineering here. So it, it's tough because we're not present and there's a pretty common misconception that we're just not there because we're not capable. But that's really like not the story at all. The story is that there are so many systemic barriers keeping us from joining these schools and from getting the education that we need to join these companies or these research labs that are doing the work. And, you know, that can be uh, monetary, it can be access to internet and things like that. Those are like the, the more tangible things, but even larger is this kind of uh, non-visible discrimination that we often face as disabled people in that we're seen as not capable of 
being academic, of doing the work, of having bodies that can go through the rigor of school, which is sometimes true, and that's not our fault. <laughs> that's academia's fault, but there's just so much at play, keeping us from even getting our foot in the door. The cost of living for a graduate student uh, can be pretty high, and when you're disabled, and you have to pay for a more expensive apartment, and you pay for medical care, medications. Um, a graduate student stipend isn't enough. Mm. So you end up getting a job that pays more, and you don't end up in those positions of power that are making change as often. I mean, it's definitely possible. You spoke about one framing of the solution is a positive feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that mean to you? How can you explain the positive feedback loop? Yeah, so the goal is better designs and better people, right? So if I can have better access to an education, to the tools I need, to an environment that is supportive and welcoming to me, I have a better chance of completing school, of getting a good job, of being in positions of power that make change possible, be that at a company, in a school, starting my own business, whatever it is. And when we do that, we increase the representation and the diversity of our institutions. And by doing that, we've got people making decisions, thinking about themselves. And for me, that would mean thinking about disabled people. For example, if I'd worked at an autonomous robot company, I would have red flagged my problem immediately. You're like, hey guys, um, big issue. <laughs> yeah, every person I talk to that's interacted with one of these and been disabled is equally wary um, as I am of the technology. And so that really says something, like we've got some like hive brain going on there. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just a positive feedback of increasing access, increasing the ability to to land these positions of power and make changes that make it easier for people to access and easier to change. So it, it kind of goes from access to change over and over. Mm-hmm. And the goal being that everybody's represented, everybody has equal access. We're not just there, but we have equitable, supportive environments to work in. This episode is brought to you by Gusto. Okay, this is legit. I am such a fan of Gusto. I was really excited when they wanted to sponsor this episode because I love Gusto. (laughs) Truly. So you might be like, okay, okay, so what is it? What is Gusto? So Gusto is an easy online payroll and benefits service built for me, built for modern small businesses. It's a one-stop shop. It's the place where I pay. It's where I do payroll. It's where we do benefits. It's where I can bring on contractors. But there's all these other things that I didn't know I needed, like how to stay compliant, how to be compliant in your specific state. And then like all of these other HR questions. What I love about Gusto is that not only is their customer support super awesome, but the way that the UI is set up, it's like a checklist. It's like this small business checklist and you just 
go in there and you're like, okay, what do I need to press? And you kind of get this like small business crash course as you grow, which is amazing because it's like, this is the last thing that I want to think about, truly. And it helps with everything. I mean, it helps with time tracking, with health insurance, 401ks, onboarding, commuter benefits, offer letters. Like, it's really no surprise that 94% of their customers are likely to recommend Gusto. Like, listen to me. Listen to me. I am I'm a Gusto customer, and I'm like, thank you. So here's the best part. Because you're a listener, you get three months totally free. That is enough payrolls for you to be like, oh wait, I haven't thought about payrolls in three months. Exactly. So all you have to do is go to gusto.com backslash girlboss. That's gusto.com backslash girlboss. And I am telling you, you're going to love it. There's no other platform that does this as well as Gusto does. Here's a fact. Even if Gusto didn't sponsor this episode, I would have told you about it anyways, somehow. I would have slipped it in one of these episodes. Anyways, I'm a fan, Gusto. Thanks so much. (laughs) Damn, she's obsessed. I know, shut up. I do, I love Gusto. I'm a web designer, so I'm very familiar with being ADA compliant, but I completely know what you're talking about in terms of the scare tactics Mm -hmm. that salespeople use to, you know, make sure that you're compliant. We had an interview actually with, it's a totally different world, but it was about immigrants. And Mm -hmm. her big suggestion was to find local nonprofits, communities, organizations that are actually run by immigrants, if that's what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Do you have any suggestions for businesses like myself that are trying to be more conscious? I mean, I think the easy answer is like, we can just do our research, but (laughs) if you have any tips. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so I think the same advice stands. Most cities have uh, access groups or advocacy groups. They can be very broad, just disability groups that can be uh, broken down by disability. So that's one great option, especially if it's a physical thing that you want interacted with. One of the great aspects of the disability community is that we are incredibly online. (laughs) And that's a result of us being often forced to be at home and having no choice but to be connected virtually if we want to be connected. The best place to find us is probably Twitter or other kind of sites like the Disability Visibility Project, which is a collection of podcasts and blog posts and stories uh, written by disabled people. We're, we're pretty easy to find. And I think that that's a great place to start because often the problem is that we just aren't heard. You know, we're like screaming into a void. <laughs> and The internet's a pretty big place. <laughs> it is a pretty big place. My story is a little bit different because it's not very often that the yelling into the void, something comes out of it. It's good. I'm really thankful to have been heard and I've heard from people that do this kind of design, that do similar human-computer interactions, 
that this was eye-opening for them. And it's like, that's exactly what I wanted. And so we're out there yelling. We just have to try to find us, basically. Oh, I love that. I love that the goal is for a little eye-opening. That's sometimes enough of a catalyst to have another conversation that would have never been had in a company, <clears throat> to do a little bit more research. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way to look at it. Yeah, even people in life, like my friends, tell me, oh, I literally never thought about where I step, what I'm stepping onto. Because people often don't realize that I guess their house has stairs, which is like mind blowing to me. But people will tell me, oh, I've seen now that there's so much wrong and I didn't know until I went somewhere with you or I heard you talk about it. Like I said earlier, I get angry. I have no problem being angry, but I do try to limit my anger toward people who, on some level, really don't have any context and have no, no reason personally. Because uh, we are humans and we do think about ourselves. And so I kind of see my advocacy as, in part, just like being that first contact to be like, hey, this is a problem. <laughs> um, and, and hoping that really starts a change in people's minds, which is really the first step to addressing a lot of ableism. Mm -hmm. I think as a designer, it's interesting because you're saying that, you know, the burden is really on the user, not necessarily the environment that it lives in. Mm -hmm. And even slowing down, because if you don't, you know, technology is fast and it's moving as fast as it possibly can, but at what cost? Right. Yeah. Is really the question. And it's hard because, I mean, I could go on a hour's rant about the effects of capitalism, <laughs> but the idea is that, you know, we're moving so fast and companies are moving so fast because that's the value is that you are the first, you achieve something before anybody else, you make your name. And that's great. I'm all for that until it's harmful. And the problem is that it's often not acknowledged that it's harmful. The, the expense that it puts on us, um, often as disabled people, is fairly high in comparison to what is seen as the net good uh, for the public. And so really combating the idea that something is good because it's first, or something is good because it benefits most people, and thinking, wait, but I mean, are we willing to put people at risk and to decrease the quality of life of a group of people for others' benefit? I mean, I'm just like floored because you've done so much and just hearing how hard it is to actually get through school in itself is its own feat. Can you tell us how you got started in STEM and mm -hmm. what you were focused on? Yeah. So. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a museum coordinator. Like I wanted to do art history. That was my plan until basically college application time. And I made a switch. I tipped my family upside down and was like, JK. Um, and I, I don't know if that was a good choice, honestly. And I think about that all the time. So I said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do science. At that point, I had been through uh, kind of the chemistry and physics and kind of the basic courses. And 
I did a lot of trouble in lab courses, which when you're in high school, everything is a lab. You learn a topic, you have a lab. And I struggled a lot because I'm not physically strong enough or nimble enough to pour acids and to use Bunsen burners. And it's dangerous and scary. <laughs> and so I said, well, okay, I could be an engineer because it seems like they just would sit at a desk. I don't know. <laughs> and so it was really ill-defined and it still is as a field, but chemical engineering, it turns out to be kind of like math for people who did okay in chemistry. <laughs> it's a very broad field. You can do factories and design you know, big rigs for factories. You can design uh, more energy-focused things, batteries. Um, then there's people like me who do biology, but we do it with math. And so I went to undergrad very confused <laughs> and very unsure about what I was actually going to do. And um, I ended up doing terribly my first year. I was actually looking at my grades yesterday from undergrad and they were not great. But one day I was with a professor and I was kind of lamenting about lab courses and how like tough they were for me to be a part of. And he was like, oh, well, do you know Kurt? And I was like, who's Kurt? <laughs> I don't know anybody <laughs> named Kurt. And Kurt turned out to be a computational chemist. So their lab group, they don't even use a lab. It's all computers um, running simulations. And he said, oh, this would be great for you because you don't have to be in a lab ever again. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. And so I joined that lab and I really learned about the possibility and I didn't need to be worrying about my physical ability and my safety to do cool science. That was the first time I'd heard that because computational fields are pretty well hidden, at least when you're in undergrad. They're not super um, present, they're not talked about a lot. But it turns out there's a lot of different fields that you can do simulation-based science. And so that's what I've chosen to pursue. And the fit is great and I, I really enjoy being able to, to do science from anywhere. It's the best setup I could think of for me. Yeah. And Kurt. <laughs> and Kurt. Shout out to Kurt. <laughs> Shout out to Kurt. Not many people really understand STEM, myself included. I have an idea of what it is, but how is STEM different from what we think of as science and technology and math? Mm -hmm. Yeah. STEM is I think much broader than the general idea. And even now there's STEAM and there's STEM with two M's, where the second M is uh, medical, and the A is arts, I believe. And so it's really broad. I think when we're taught STEM as a concept, it's like, oh, I'm gonna do like my chemistry and my physics, and I'm gonna do my math, and then I'm gonna do whatever tech is. I don't know, I'll like hammer something. <laughs> but I think, it's much cooler than that, in that there's so much crossover between them that there really isn't just like straight chemistry anymore or straight math. They're all intertwined. We've got computer science is kind of dabbling in all of them. We've got interplay between biology and chemistry because 
you know, our cells are full of chemical reactions happening. And then there's things like that we think of as futuristic, like robots and, I don't know, electric cars and things that are actually happening and that are closer than we think. And so STEM is very vague nowadays, I think. Mm-hmm. And really anything can be kind of shoved in there. I really, really resonate with that teaching style mm-hmm. in a sense, because it's cross-disciplinary, it's very exploratory, and it isn't so black and white. It doesn't force you down one path forever, which I hate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Me too. I love that you are taught from the get-go that you can shift your focus Mm -hmm. and you can pick up whatever skills necessary to fix the problem that you want to pursue. Mm -hmm. And I have an inkling that that's also what happened with yourself because when COVID happened, you decided to shift your focus into antiviral drug treatment. Yeah, so my kind of graduate story is that I'm a chemical engineer by training, which is totally unrelated to the research that I started when I came here, which is better under systems biology, which is solving biological problems using math and computer science and things like that. So in my department, we are very odd out in that there's nobody else doing things like us. And so when I started, I was doing uh, studies around the flu and trying to understand the way that we can identify different proteins or parts of the cell that we could use to understand drug treatments. But it was very hypothetical. But then when COVID hit, the community of us doing this work was like, oh, we gotta do something (laughs) and so it was a wild time like academically i picked up three new projects a lot of really good collaboration has come out of covid if you can say something good has come out of covid um the science community has really come together so for example I joined a group that um, there's 120 of us on the paper uh, that basically said, okay, let's try to track every new paper that comes out and make a map of everything that we know that happens in a cell when COVID starts. So, you know, people who were, I'm a cardiologist in, in Italy, like, what can I do? Or people who were like, I developed a way we can track all this data. Mm. I don't know anything, but I'm willing to help, which was me. Um, (laughs) And so I had a very, very small part, I should say, of this large community effort. And the outcome is a really valuable, specific tool in a really short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So it's really so fun to see what we can accomplish together in, unfortunately, a time of crisis, but It's really, I hope, a model for us going forward as far as the way that we work with each other. And we cross between all of the STEM fields and we really can interact in a really exciting way. There's something for everyone to do. I think that a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to organize a ton of information. Yeah, it's rough. (laughs) Even getting like 10 people to put like one thing each in a Dropbox, undoable. Like 
Good luck. No, I can barely get on a Zoom call without some technical difficulty. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine being on a Word doc with 120 people. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's chaos. <laughs> so I guess, do you think that that was a big shift in your focus in academia? Or was that something that is pretty norm for you? That was pretty abnormal. The kind of academic mindset is that, especially this far into, once you reach graduate school, you sort of pick your thing and then you do it, probably for the rest of your life. And, you know, you pick up new skills, you learn new things, you make collaborations, but it's often people pick their field and, and that's it. It takes quite a lot to learn a whole new field. I'd say I spend the majority of my time in that COVID switch actually devoted to repurposing a project of mine that was very easy to throw in some new data and do a new analysis. And that allowed us to identify some drug candidates um, that we thought we could use to treat COVID quickly, which was kind of, it's the big goal, right? Is to, you know, like, is it hydroxychloroquine? Is it thermocin? Like, what can we give that we already have? And so, like that was, my project, I developed it before, so it, that wasn't a jump as far as the actual tool or the methods, but it was the knowledge it takes to understand the results or to understand the system that you're working within because it's actually very different. And so it's about like a willingness to learn new things and how much you can take on, especially in a time like that when the news was COVID Everything was COVID and I spent all day working on COVID. So it was a mental uh, exercise as well, where I needed to be careful of how much time I was spending kind of spiraling about mm -hmm. death tolls and the way that disabled people were being refused care and worrying about my family, balancing all that with thinking about COVID in an academic context. Um, mm. So it's been a lot. A COVID research project inside of the standard nightmare of being alive during a pandemic hasn't been the only tough thing Emily's been dealing with recently. A member of her academic fellowship program committed suicide at the end of 2019. TA Consortium is a group of Howard Hughes Medical Institute Gilliam Fellows, which I am one of. So it's a fellowship of um, around 40 people a year that receive funding for their PhDs. And to be a fellow, you have to be from an underrepresented group in science. And one of our cohort took her life in December 2019. And so we came together as a group to process that. And her family was very open about the fact that academia had largely contributed to her mental health struggles. And we came together and talked a lot about our own mental health and the way that we wanted to move forward. And we decided that it was important to honor her name is Taylor Brown and to also try to better the environment for all graduate students and early career researchers. 
but particularly underrepresented groups who really don't receive support, who often come from environments where mental health is not a subject that your family would talk about. So it's, it's really tough mm. for underrepresented groups in particular who have these discriminations and strains. It's something that we need to talk about more as people in academia. It's often seen as a sign of weakness mm. to discuss, you know, I'm, I'm struggling, things are not going well for me or whatever, but mm. um, it's really important that people don't feel alone, mm -hmm. which is often kind of what happens when we feel like, oh, it's just me not being able to meet deadlines or mm -hmm. me that can't do the work or is not smart enough. And so, yeah, personally, I see a therapist and I have built support systems within the community and that's made it much easier to have that kind of support that you need to get through academia. With academia, you can't just really switch your school, you know, like at no. least with freelancing, I can be like, all right, peace client, or right. I can move jobs, but yeah. it's so much harder for you. Yeah. So we are currently trying to unionize our graduate students, like many universities across the U.S. Mm. And that's really a large part of it. We don't have a say in our contracts, in the expectations, in how much we get paid or how many hours we're supposed to be working. We have no safeguards for uh, an advisor wants us to work 120 hour weeks. We really don't have a way to combat that. And so mm -hmm. that's a large part of our unionization efforts is really just trying to take back some agency in our working conditions and really be recognized for the value that we have and the way that we contribute to STEM and to the university as a whole. Mm -hmm. At Girlboss, we're always trying to redefine success. Mm -hmm. And I'm so curious, how has that changed for you? And or when did it change? Yeah. Why did it change? I think as I've grown in my advocacy and in my involvement, I've placed much more value on my communities mm. and in addressing the needs of others. Not that I was like a selfish brat before, but I think <laughs> that I find myself thinking about my community and people that I may or may not know, but that I can help by actions that I can take. And so I think to me, success is doing good for other people, for me, whether it's doing science and learning something that the world didn't know before, or that is a helpful clinical use, for example, like a, a pharmaceutical, or if it's educating on disability discrimination, there's so much you can do that really reaches beyond you um, and your immediate community. It, it can be such a wide definition, yeah. but overall doing good is success to me. Mm. Well, Emily, this was such a pleasure. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've had so many eye-opening moments. I love and that. <laughs> <laughs> and I really, really appreciate everything that you've done mm -hmm. in all facets of your work. Thank um, you. Even personally and even in academia, you're always trying to figure out a way to do good and it's such a good reminder. 
that could be your North Star. And I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. If you want to learn more about Emily's work, you can check out emilyeackerman.com. And if you want to learn more about folks with disabilities and disability rights, you can check out the disabilityvisibilityproject.com. Girl Boss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio, original music composed by Nija. This episode was produced by Juliana Clark, Amani Leonard, Christopher Olin, and Courtney Kosak. Engineering was done by Stephanie Aguilar with help from Vinay Shaw. Our editorial director is Clemence. Special thanks to Taylor, Nora Agency, and Kaylee. Until next Tuesday, see ya!